You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul reminds us that if the resurrection is not true, then everything we do this morning is foolishness. It would be crazy to show up here this morning if the resurrection is not true. So Paul tells us that, and now he will continue to talk about the power and the, what, what the resurrection produces. There are a number of believers today that you have all the facts. You have all the information. You can quote the scriptures. You have been raised in Sunday school. And, and what you have done is you filled your head with knowledge of the Word of God and the Bible. But oftentimes, there is then no transferring of that knowledge into right living. And that's problematic, because the Bible was not given just to fill your head with facts. Facts are important. Truth is important. But the Bible was given so that our lives could be changed. Changed. And so we come to the Word of God, and the idea is not, let's just get through the Bible, but to allow the Bible to get through us. So that as we come in contact with the living God and his truth, we then are profoundly transformed. We're not what we used to be. We are seeing spiritual growth in our life. And so, let me encourage you this morning. This passage of Scripture, verses 20 through 34, it's a very heavy portion of Scripture. It is theologically rich. There are some complicated verses in this section. And I say that to you this morning, not so that you can check out now. It's like, well, it's beyond me. I'm done. I'm out. I say that so you stay engaged. Remember last week, I think it was, we learned that because of the resurrection, our preaching is not in vain. It is not empty. It is of value. And so I want you to be engaged this morning as we look to the truth of this scripture about the power of the resurrection and what this truth ought to be producing in our lives today. It does impact you. It does impact me. So look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And here is Paul stating the fact. He says, listen, I want you to know something. We know, we have the scripture, we have the eyewitnesses, we have the empty tomb. Christ is risen from the dead. It's a fact. And then he goes on to say that he's become the first fruit of them that slept. And the idea of that first fruit, to remind you, is that symbolic offering the Israelites would make. They would take the first portion of grain and, and bring it before the Lord and say, listen, we are giving this to you, God, recognizing that it's all from you and guaranteeing that the harvest will follow. And so Paul says that Christ is our first fruit. It means that he was the first of a kind of resurrection, and it will affect the destiny and the character of those who follow. With that said, we understand that now because Christ is risen from the dead, that our resurrection is sure. It is inevitable. Because Christ is risen, believers will rise again. And not only that, our resurrection is similar. Christ physically 
stood up again after being dead. And so he's the beginning of all future resurrections. Verse number 21. For since by man came death. And let's just stop here. Um, you seem a little sleepy this morning. Are we sleepy this morning? No. The people who are sleeping aren't answering. Okay. Um, okay. I don't want you to be a little sleepy this morning. I want you to stay engaged. I know it's a holiday weekend. I know you're thinking about other things, but let's stay engaged this morning. And let me help you by doing a little quiz. Okay? For since by man came death, who do you think Paul is speaking about? Adam. Okay? Pretty good guess. Adam. And you must be referring to Genesis chapter 3, that Adam's sin plunged the world into chaos. All right? Let's move on. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Who do you suppose he's talking about there? Very good. So far, so good. That wasn't that hard, was it? Now, if you're like me, if you've ever taken an exam or a test, and you put the answer down, after I'm done, I start going back thinking, is that the right answer? Oh, is this professor trying to trip me up? Did I say the right thing? I mean, Jesus is always the right answer, so maybe Adam is the wrong answer. I don't know. Paul's going to help us now. Look at the next verse. Just in case you were unsure of what he was talking about. He says now in verse number 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so he says, you're exactly right. He's talking about Adam. He's talking about Christ. And we would then just simply move on from this verse. But let me tell you something about this little verse that we find here. Commentators say of this verse, that it is the high point of the whole chapter. This verse. Others say that in this verse we have Pauline anthropology in a miniature. That what Paul believes about the doctrine of man, we find here. And so it's important this morning, you might not think so, but it is to stay here for just one moment. Here's what Paul does. He is still arguing the resurrection. And, and Paul... It has a, a profound way of answering questions that people might be asking. And so he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about what Christ has done, how he is the first fruits. And so the question may arise, okay, wait a minute. How can it be that what Christ did embodies all future resurrection? Or, or how can it be that some man that died... 2,000 years ago can impact not only my life today, but my eternity and my future resurrected body. That's a lot to swallow. How in the world can that be? And here's what Paul says. Paul says the reason that Christ's resurrection can affect you and I this morning as believers in Christ is the same way that what Adam did affects the entire human race. For those who care, we call this original sin or inherited guilt. What the Bible teaches is Adam as a representative, as the head of the human race, he sins, and when God sees Adam's sin, all of humanity now is classified underneath Adam. Inherited guilt. Inherited depravity of every child of Adam. Here's what B.B. Warfield says, simply put, we are born sinners with a bent toward evil and a natural aversion to God. We now have an inclination within us that always leads us away from God and toward sin. We are now, because of Adam, and we are all in Adam, 
everyone here, we are children of Adam and Eve. And because of that, we have his inherited guilt. We have a bent toward wrong. When I was growing up, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. And I, I don't want to say she was crazy. But she was crazy. You folks know, you have grandmothers like that, right? Um, and so, when I was about seven years old, my grandmother took me, uh, along with her friend, to a bar in the middle of the day. And she was drinking there. And I remember her coming up uh, off her stool and saying, Ricky, come here. Now, my grandmother called me Ricky. No one else does. Scott Thompson, don't even try it, all right? <laughs> I think my sister still might say it every now and then. Maybe my mom. My wife doesn't say that. She said, Ricky, come here. So I ran over, about seven years old. She got off the stool, and then she punched me as hard as she could in my bread basket. She's crazy. Why did she do that? Well, she did it because first she was drunk, and then because she wanted to teach me a lesson. Because after she punched me, she said, Ricky, life is not fair. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I did nothing wrong. You just punched me in the stomach. And, and that was my grandmother. That's the kind of relationship we had. And uh, when, when we would go and use the public transit system of Cleveland, she was the first one who taught me to put the, the change in with her so we could rip off the bus driver. We would go out to eat lunch at Kresge's, an old, an old kind of, I don't know, a Five and Dime Place. I don't know if they had them here or not. They had them. They have Kresge's, right? Remember the little lunches you could have at Kresge's? We go to Kresge's, and as we were leaving Kresge's, my grandmother would walk by the tables and take the tips off of them. You wonder what's wrong with me today. <laughs> For my birthday, we would go shopping, and she always had a huge purse. And she would ask me what I wanted for my birthday. I would pick it out in the aisle. And then she'd say, go to the next aisle. And then in a few seconds, we would run out of the store with her purse and my present. I'm not making it up. This was my wonderful childhood. Now listen to me. Long before my grandmother ever taught me to lie, cheat, or steal, it was here already. She just honed that skill. You don't have to teach your children to lie. You don't have to teach your children to cheat. You don't have to teach them to be dishonest. We have a depraved heart, and we all have a bent to do that which is wrong. An inclination for evil, because sin reigns within. It's interesting, they read the verses this morning in Romans 6. I think they read 15 and 16. But 14 tells us that sin reigns within. The Puritans said it like this. We are unable not to sin. That's humanity. That's Adam's children. That's us today. If you have your Bible, just flip over back to one book, Romans chapter 5, because here's where we really find this teaching and this doctrine. Romans 5, Paul is speaking. And he starts at verse number 12, and he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. What he's saying here is, look at, even before the law of Moses, after Adam sinned, men continued to die without, without the law. Why? Because when God looked upon humanity because of Adam's sin, we were all guilty on that basis. And we all sinned. Maybe not like Adam, but we sinned nevertheless. And so he says, who is the figure of him who was to come? And so Paul says, listen, if you're asking this morning how it is that Christ's resurrection can, can, can embody yours in the future, it's in the same way that Adam's actions affected all of humanity as a representative. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking and you're still awake, you may say, wait a minute. Do you mean that I am somehow paying for Adam's sin? That's just not fair. Let me remind you what my grandmother said. Ricky, life's not fair. But we think that. Wait a minute, that's not fair. How can Adam represent me and now I've got, I've got this depraved heart, I've got this depraved sense, I, I'm alienated from God. How does that work? That's not fair. Let's just talk about that for a minute, okay? Because, because I think we're a little delusional this morning. Have you ever thought this? If I were in the Garden of Eden, perfect environment, perfect situation, perfect parent, and I was fellowshipping with God, I, I was walking him, with him in the cool of the day, there is no way I would disobey God. Have you ever thought that? I have, because I'm a little self-righteous, all right? I would have never done that. Can I tell you something? The fact is that each and every one of us put in Adam's situation would have done the exact same thing. Because even today, do we not question God's goodness? Do we not say, God, you're not fair? Don't we in our own hearts and lives really believe that he is a killjoy in heaven trying to keep us from good? i, I got to tell you something. I do. I have a hunch you do. And with most people I deal with, when they have issues, they really believe a lie about God. We would do the exact same thing. Not only that, um, you and I are actually guilty of a number of sins already on our own that we will be held accountable for. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. And just in case you still think it's not fair that you are represented by Adam, you must then also say that it's not fair to be represented by Christ. You can't have them both. Right? I want to be judged on my own account. Well, the angels were. And their judgment was fixed. And there was no redemption for them. And this is what Paul is saying. This is why this is the, the highlight of the entire chapter, because Paul is saying that in Adam we all die. But in Christ now and in new life, we are translated, and he now is our representative. And it, it's powerful. It really is powerful. Look back at Romans chapter 5. We'll pick up our reading there in verse number 15. He says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, 
For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and the gift of of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many shall be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered, the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. You, you want to go back to this chapter. And here's what he's saying. In Adam, right, what do we get from Adam? In Adam we have sin, condemnation, and death. But when we are translated from Adam's line to Christ through faith in him, we now have righteousness, justification, and life. Jesus Christ now is my representation. That's, a, that's why when God sees me, he does not see my righteousness. I don't have any. And neither do you. Even the good things that you do, you do for a purpose, a reason, a motive. You want someone to recognize you. It makes you feel good. <laughs> there is no righteousness. He sees me, and because now I am not just an Adam, I am in Christ. Now he sees Christ's righteousness. I cannot be condemned. I am free because of Christ. It's a beautiful truth. So Paul says, if you're wondering how this one act of Christ can embody the rest of us and we can be risen from the dead like he was bodily, just as it is in Adam, so it is in Christ. Original sin, inherited guilt. That's what he's talking about here. Okay? Move on, verse number 23. He says back in 1 Corinthians 23, but every man in his own order... Christ the first fruit, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And what he's saying here is this. Listen, because Christ is risen, this world will not continue to go crazy. It will not continue to corrupt and decay and deteriorate. Christ is coming back in a body. He will rule and reign and put everything in its rightful place. That's the hope of the believer. Verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. We have an enemy this morning. And the enemy is death. I have done... More funerals in my life than I could have ever imagined as a child. And if God gives me 25 years of ministry, I will probably do yours. And um, I have seen people struggle and fight for life over and over again. There's an enemy, and it's death. And we live in this culture that has this fascination with death, right? Destructive behavior, euthanasia, abortion, suicide. And Paul says there is an enemy. The enemy is death. And that's the future for all of us. 
What's your play on this? What's your way out? You know, vitamins, exercising, coffee enemas. What's it going to be for you to... Pre- I'm telling you, that's what people are doing. Is that going to extend your life? The truth is, all of us, if Christ tarries is coming, we will succumb to this enemy of death. Death. Paul says, I want you to know something. We are not without hope. Because when Christ rose from the dead and became the first fruits of the resurrection, it was the beginning of the end of death. When the stone was rolled away, we can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because Christ has started the process, and one day he is coming again to completely destroy death. It's a glorious truth, and that's our Savior. Verse 27, verse 28. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he hath saith all things are under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And this is another one of those verses that are a little complicated. Jehovah's Witnesses will take this verse and say, see, I told you, Jesus is not deity. He subjects himself to the Father. And so they make this argument here. But listen, we, we know this is not an ontological thing. Paul is not saying that, that, that Jesus is somehow less. The triunity of God is equal in their eternity, in their deity. That's the way it is. What he is saying here is, here's Jesus in his man, manhood, submitting himself as, a, as the last Adam, voluntarily giving the kingdom back. This might help you. The Athanasius Creed of the 4th and 5th century, here's what they say. They say, They don't say that. That's Paul saying that. The Athanasian Creed, Davey? Do you have it? It froze. Okay, let me read it to you then. Uh, Athanasian Creed said, Equal to Father as touching touching the Godhead, inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. And what he's saying is, listen, what he's talking about here is that Christ will deliver up the kingdom in his flesh, in his humanity, and God will rule and reign forever. Okay? Now, here's the topic that gets crazy. Look at verse number 29. Because Paul's going to continue this argument about the resurrection, and what he's going to tell us in a moment is this, that if the resurrection is not true, going back to that argument, then baptism and personal sacrifice are meaningless. And he starts at verse number 29. He says this, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So, so Paul, what are you talking about? What's he saying here? Um, Commentators say there are between 40 and 200 explanations of this passage. So I'd like to take take the next five hours and talk about them, all right? Uh, Some people think, well, they're talking about this baptism by proxy, about I'm being baptized for pagans or lost family members. The Mormons believe this. Others believe it's some kind of uh, this initiation uh, that the Corinthians were doing that was wrong. Here's the fact of the matter. Nobody knows for sure what Paul's talking about there. And if you want to study this out for the rest of your life, do it. Write a book. I will buy it. Okay? But here's what I think Paul is saying. And I'm, I'm comfortable with this. He's saying one of two things here. He's either saying that we are, as human beings, we are dead in trespasses and sin. We're baptized as dead 
we're raised on the newness of life, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, or he's talking about the fact that if Christ died and was buried, why would we be baptized for the dead if he doesn't get up again? And I'm comfortable with both those things. I think that's what Paul's saying here. If you have another idea, that's fine, but here's the point that he's making in this passage. The point is this, that baptism um, acts as an expression of the resurrection. It expresses in some way the final resurrection. And so Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then why be baptized to symbolize this? That's the point he's making. Um, this is another topic that is, is confusing for lots of believers today in our churches about baptism. Because Paul is saying, since the resurrection happened, we should be baptized. Um, if it didn't happen, don't. So this morning, maybe it's important for us to consider baptism as well. As well. Can I just leave the topic for a minute and just talk about baptism? Um, it's important. Paul, Paul associates it with the resurrection here. We might want to talk about it for a minute. Um, lots of questions about it. John MacArthur said this to, to folks in church. If you're in church and you're not baptized, you are either ignorant, just meaning you don't know, not in a bad way, you're ignorant. Um, you're indifferent, you don't care, or you're unconverted. And so it's worth our while to talk about, just quickly, baptism. What does it mean? You're in a Baptist church this morning. What does baptism mean? It is an act of obedience. It's the first command of Christ. It's identify with him. And what it means is this. This external act of being buried in his likeness, the death, burial, and resurrection, symbolizes to those around us something inside has happened. It's a public profession. It's saying that, listen, I am identifying with Jesus Christ. I am buried, the old man. I am raised in newness of life. Okay? So then what's the mode of baptism? Can I, can I let you a little secret? The word baptism literally means immerse, dip, plunge, immersion. Doesn't that make sense when we talk about the symbolism of being buried with him? And rising again, who's it for? If that's the case, who should be baptized? Well, the fact is, those who should be baptized are those who make a public profession of their faith in Christ. You find this in Acts chapter 2, 41, Acts chapter 8, 12, Acts chapter 10, 47, and 48. So what does it do? What, what does the act of baptism do? Right? It's important. What does it do? Well, if you ask our Roman Catholic friends, they would tell you that it brings regeneration. That's why babies are baptized. Because if they're not baptized and they die as infants, they believe they will go to hell or at least purgatory, limbo somewhere. We would say what it's for is to symbolize the fact that regeneration has already happened. If I am born again, I am telling others I have been saved. And there's a third group, paedo-baptist. They baptize children. It's our friends who are Presbyterian. Lutheran, um, Anglican, Methodist, Reformed. If you were to ask them what it, what it does, they would say they can't answer this question because they know baptism of an infant doesn't save them, and they also know that it doesn't symbolize that they are saved. So I guess what they would say is it's, you know, hopefully, hopefully in the future that they're going to be born again, but that's not even accurate. And so that's what it does. It's a symbol. So is it necessary? Is baptism necessary? The answer to that is yes and no. Is it necessary for salvation? No, it's not. 
How do we know that? The thief on the cross, right? Luke chapter 23. He says, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He died, wasn't baptized, and Christ said, you'll be with me in paradise. But can I ask you this? Do you think if he got off the cross and he could be identified with Christ, that maybe he would do that? It's not necessary for salvation, but I'll tell you what it is necessary for. It's an act of obedience. It's the first thing that God commands his children to do. Um, Not only that, it is the joy of publicly proclaiming your identification with Christ who publicly died for you. It's a big deal. It's a sign of entrance into the fellowship of the visible church. Acts chapter 2, 41. When they believe, they were baptized, they were added to the church, and it strengthens and encourages our faith as we witness it. Some of the greatest services we've had in our church have been baptismal services where people have proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then why be baptized? But since there is, we ought to be. So this morning, the question for you is, is it because you are ignorant? And you shouldn't be now. We just gave a real quick idea there. Maybe it's because you're unconverted. You should not be baptized. It's confusing. But I hope this morning it's not because you're indifferent. You just don't care about it. It's a big deal because it's an act of obedience that identifies with Christ. Years ago, this was 12 years ago, if you've ever been to our communion services, you will hear this said, where, where we say, um, if you've trusted Christ, and since the time of your salvation, you follow the Lord in believer's baptism, join us in the Lord's table. We've always said that. Because if baptism, if communion is given to the church, then baptism is how we get into the church so they go together. We had a, a dear couple here. They're still here. And, and that bothered them because they were baptized as infants. So we don't like that. And I said, I know you don't like that. We should talk about this. And so I gave them a bunch of verses. And on Thursday night, Bob and I were going to go out and talk to them about baptism and, and being baptized as a baby and what that meant and making promises. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Baptism. I promised my parents I can't do it again. Matter of fact, they were warned when they came here that we try to get them in the tank and dunk them. So we do just get, come here, we're going to dunk you. Right? And so come Thursday night, Bob and I went over to their house and, and we knocked on the door and we we're ready for this big debate on you know, baptism, about infant baptism and, and believers' baptism. And we opened the door and Mr. and Mrs. Hooktra said, We're getting baptized. I said, why? They said, because it's in the Bible. Can I tell you something? Listen to me. This is not just a push for baptism, but it is important. And and some of you folks, I think you you hesitate because you've made promises in the past to maybe parents or grandparents who are godly people. But listen to me. If they're in heaven now, don't you think they would want you to please God instead of keep a promise to them? It's, it's, It's insane. So Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, don't bother with baptism, because baptism beautifully signifies the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Don't bother if it's not true. If it is true, maybe you ought to, okay? Verse number 30. He says, not only should we not be baptized if that's not the case, but verse number 30 says, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Listen to what he's saying now. If there is no resurrection, forget about baptism. And if there's no resurrection, then why in the world should we even jeopardize our life for anything? What he's saying is this. If there's no resurrection of Christ, don't even stand for him. 
Don't be different. Try to fit in. Don't cause yourself any grief. It's just not worth it. Why would you do that if there's no resurrection? He says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And we talk about jeopardy. He was serious. It wasn't because some of his friends were going to make fun of him. It's because his life was on the line. He says, if there's no resurrection, then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I think what Paul is saying there is, I swear by all that I hold true, or dear, this is true, what I'm telling you is true. He says at the end of that verse, I die daily. And Paul says, because of the resurrection, I'm telling you, I'm making sacrifice. I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to my pleasures. I'm not doing what I want to do. But if it's not true, then why bother with this? He goes on. Verse 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, and we don't know that that actually happened, what most people believe is that that, uh, Paul is talking about great difficulty, great problems, great opposition. Um, Ignatius uses the same terminology in early church father talking about soldiers. He's talking about a hard life is what he's talking about. What advantage, um, what advantage should it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and here's what he's saying to us. If this resurrection thing is not true, don't worry about baptism. But not only that, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. It's Huxley's Brave New World when he, he says, um, uh, what's the quote from Huxley? Let me get it for you. Somebody wipe it off today, tomorrow. I can't find it now. Oh, here's what he says. Never put off until tomorrow the fun that you can have today. Brave New World, no morality. And what I'm telling you this morning is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then you, you would be a fool to be here and to even consider Christianity. Here's what Paul is saying. Now listen, don't take this out of context now, because I know you could clip this in the recording, but here's what Paul is saying if there's no resurrection. Go out and get drunk. Get wasted, man. Try every kind of drug, altering drug, mind-altering drug that you can get a hold of to experience the pleasures of life. Just go ahead and do it. Don't be faithful to anyone. Explore your sexuality. Be promiscuous. Fornicate. Be true to yourself. Don't ever stand for right. Go with the flow. March to the beat of the drum of this world because if there is no resurrection, you're a fool not to do those things. That's exactly what he's saying. And I would repeat the same thing if the resurrection is not true. We are foolish to have any restraints, to make any personal sacrifices. It doesn't make any sense. But look what he says now in verse number 33. Be not deceived. If there's no resurrection, then go for it. But don't be deceived. There is a resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive and well. It does change everything. Your life does matter. What you do is important. There are actions that we take today that affect eternity. Don't be deceived. Don't fall asleep on this thing. Don't think that the resurrection isn't important. Be not deceived. Then he says, evil communications corrupt 
good manners. Whether he's quoting uh, Meander's play or not doesn't matter. What he's saying is evil companionship corrupts good character. So don't be deceived. The resurrection is true, and you better be careful listening to people who are telling you things that aren't true. Listen to me this morning. Paul's concern is that these believers shun people who don't believe in the resurrection because what you're told and the philosophies you listen to and the people you hang with, they do affect you. This morning, if you show me your friends, I will show you your future. There's no way around it. They impact us. They always do. And when you're listening to a, a crowd that doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, that believes life doesn't matter, when you're listening to philosophies that are wrong and they're not true, after a while, it will affect you. And Paul says, don't be deceived. What I'm telling you is true. It does matter. It does make a difference. And then he says this, awake to righteousness and sin not. And this is the whole point. Because of the resurrection, Paul says, because Christ is risen, because the Savior is alive and well, because he is coming back to rule and reign, because he will judge this earth someday, because what we do matters for eternity, he says, wake up! Awake to righteousness and quit sinning. Quit playing games. Quit acting like it doesn't matter at all what I do and how I live and what I say and where I go and who I associate with. Paul says, wake up! You have been sleeping in this area. Christ is alive. It changes everything. Everything. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some of you have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says, listen, Corinthians. You have no idea what this God is like. And it's shameful. Because if you knew that this God conquered sin, death, and the grave, that he got up, that he stood up in a body, that he conquered hell for you, he took the price for you, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he does know your pain and your grief, that he hears your cry, that this God is beautiful and lovely and altogether worth worshiping. If you knew that, it would change you. And so Paul says this resurrection is important. And because it's true, Wake up. Quit your sinful lifestyle. Know the God who is. This morning, my friend, listen, the resurrection changes everything. It does. And we better understand it for what it is. And not only just know it in our heads and be able to quote some verses, but allow that truth to change our lives. One last quote, if we can get it. I'm not sure if it's still frozen back there. Is it frozen? Ah, no, that's the wrong one. Last one. On the resurrection? Well, there we go. No resurrection means a hopeless end. Hopeless end. So what you can party? So what you can fulfill every lust you have? So what? You lie, you cheat, you steal, you get your way. So what? When it ends, it ends, and you're done. You're done. If there's no resurrection, there's God in heaven, then you're judged. If there's no resurrection, you die like a dog and you disappear. No resurrection means a hopeless end. But because of Christ's resurrection, it means endless hope. Endless hope. Why? Because it doesn't matter what I go through. It doesn't matter what sacrifice I make. It doesn't matter if I think I'm by myself. 
I am not, because I always have hope, because Christ is risen from the dead. He is coming again, and he will rule and reign. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.